The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Very warm welcome, everybody. You're watching Sportbox. Let's get into your headlines this hour. U.S. stocks posting their worst week of the year after a key inflation measure comes in hotter than expected. Cleveland Fed President Loretta Mester telling CNBC she is sticking with her December rate projection for now. We're going to set policy to do what we have to do to get back to price stability. So we've been raising interest rates. We've seen some of that working through the economy. We have seen some pressure off the inflation, but inflation remains too high. And as, as you know, coming out of the, the meeting last time and the minutes showed earlier this week that we're going to have to do a little more to get that back to price stability of 2%. Warren Buffett defends stock buybacks in his annual letter to shareholders, calling critics of the practice economically illiterate as the investment giant posts a near $23 billion annual net loss. UK Prime Minister Rishi Sunak pushing for a deal holding face-to-face talks with the European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen today as he tries to secure a new Brexit agreement for Northern Ireland. And don't call it a comeback. Uh, Commerzbank readies to re-enter the DAX after being pushed out to make way for then-rising star Wirecard. Uh, we're going to speak exclusively with the uh, Commerzbank CEO, that's Manfred Knopf, at 9.25 CET. And we're back at Mobile World Congress in Barcelona with a clash between big tech and European telecoms firms over who pays their fair share, set to dominate discussions. So, very good morning. Uh, welcome back from Poland. How was it? Look cold. It was a bit cold. It yeah. was a bit it cold. Was a bit yeah. But it's yeah. very interesting. Though. I've never been to a democratic party convention event how it before. Felt? So, uh, oh, it really did. Right. So, this is Biden laying out his, his stall for- effectively for yeah. elections next Certainly year. Certainly laying out his foreign policy stall, I, was, right. uh, I would suggest as well. I mean, that's what it felt like. It was mm. all the, you know, the music, the, 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 the lights. They had smoke blowing across and then the light strobes across it as well. Mm. And at the end, it was. Oh, yeah, there were children on stage with Biden. It all just felt a little bit like, you know, the only thing we didn't get was the, the red, white and blue balloons coming down at the end, you know. Right. But it, it very much felt like a, a party event. I don't know what it looked like to the viewers as well. I mean, don't get me wrong. It was a very strong message about, certainly while he is uh, leading the United States as well, about the message to autocrats everywhere uh, about support for liberal democracy and, and it, you know, laying out the fact, which I think we all agree with, that the, the, the Russians got it badly wrong at the start of this war and they've had it, got it badly wrong since of what they think the Western democracies can do. So, yes, it was a very big message for the West and its leadership and support of Ukraine, but it also felt like a, a bit of a, a step towards an announcement about a second term. Yeah. Have you seen um, Donald Trump continually tweeting now? about the air raid, air raid sirens. Right. This, this seems to have really got stuck in his craw. Right. And um, obviously he's looking forward to the 2024 elections as well. Well, will he make it to uh, the, Sorry, I don't know. Is he well, going to be sure. the Republican candidate? Well, I think he will have to wait There's a lot of people, including some old lieutenants of his, yeah. who actually feel that maybe it's time to look beyond 
um, Mr. Trump's era as the figure of dominance in the Republican Party. Yeah. Well, he, he seems to be struggling to get past the air raid sirens. In, and it was a it was an extraordinary moment, I have to say that, yeah. on Biden's tour last week. But markets, eh? Yeah. Markets. Heard of funky, eh? Fading to the end of the week. Yeah, and, and I better are. go and do some markets. You better go. Is what you're trying look. to tell me today. Look, I won't <laughs> spend too much time on this because we've got Roger Lee waiting in the wings as well, and he'll be able to be far more erudite than I am on this. But it, it's very simple. The markets suddenly realised that actually uh, inflation is stickier than expected, that some of the data is far more robust than expected. Uh, and guess what? Interest rates, yes, here, here's the big reveal, interest rates could be higher for longer. And, and again, here's one for all our economist friends out there. Inflation wasn't transitory. Yeah, I know, exactly. It's not just transitory, it's lasted a long while. Because some of you out there are still trying to tell us it's transitory. How long does transitory have to last before it's permanent? About, about three or four years, according to some of you. Anyway, so the markets fell on Friday uh, pretty aggressively again. Not as aggressively as they were down at one point as well, but with the Nasdaq down 1.7% as well. For the week, and this is what you need to know as well, we've seen four out of four weeks in a row with the Dow down. We lost 3% last week. It is the worst week since September 2022. The S&P was down five out of six of the last sessions, down 2.7% for the week. And for the week, the Nasdaq was down 3.3%. And again, I know there was leadership to the downside from consumer discretionary for the week as well down 4.4 percent but actually this was a broad brush sell-off as shown by the transports which were also down exactly the same as the nasdaq for the week down 3.3 percent we move on to treasuries uh, treasuries again the the, the the big rally we've seen in fixed income products uh, in the first few weeks of the year, that just, just that's disappeared now as well. You've got concern about junk as well, which is widening uh, over treasuries. You've also got the 10-year yield. Look at that. Big rally up 1.3% for the week for the uh, dollar index. I'll come to that in a moment. But look at this. 10-year yields now nearly circa 4% as, uh, um, and the yield there and the yield on the two-year 4.8% as well. And I keep getting told, oh, there's, it's a safe place to put your money in the shorter end of the curve. Well, if the yields keep picking up and the underlying keeps going down, not quite as safe as I'm told. Anyway, dollar index, I mentioned this one, up 1.3% for the week. It gained 0.6% on Friday. So hence the pound, which at well, one point was 124, wasn't it? Now 119.38 as well. Euro dollar, which was got up to what, 108, 109, now 105. Uh, the yen, which had rallied to 129, now back to 136 as well. Well, I mean, who knows what Ueda's son's going to be doing uh, over at the BOJ when that confirmation process ends. Uh, and the dollar also gaining against the yuan, 6.96 there. Um, oil prices, well, <laughs> the Russians, the big reveal, the Russians are going to try and halt production, or not halt production, but lower production, of course, as we've heard for a while now, uh, to, to prop up prices. Uh, yeah, not quite working out like that, is it? 82.66, down 0.6% on Brent as well, WTI. Uh, 75.92 and I can tell you a lot of the product out there continues to decline in cost as well compared with uh, where many of the experts in the industry thought it was going to be. Do you remember they were saying the spot is wrong, the product demand, the refined product, we can't get hold of it. Well, I just filled up with heating oil again and it was the cheapest price I've paid since the start of the crisis. It's just an anecdote but it certainly fits in with the wider um, feeling that actually there isn't the same energy squeeze that many of us thought there would be and many people told us there would be when the Chinese reopened. So let's have a look at the Chinese reopening, where we are in some of these markets as well. Uh, Shanghai Composite down three temps, Hang Seng down seven temps, Nikkei 
down 0.1% S&P ASX 200 1.1% easy there is an awful lot of data due this week as well yeah. we've got durable goods today Jeffrey we've got advanced economic indicators I'm going to try not trip up on all these wires here uh, on Tuesday as well good morning Roger nice to see you I don't know if we've introduced him yet but he's in the wide shot uh, <laughs> Wednesday mortgage applications manufacturing data ISM PMIs and productivity and unit labour costs on Thursday yeah absolutely but just to reflect on Friday's uh, important number the Fed's favoured guest age of inflation showed prices rising more than expected in January. The personal consumption expenditures price index increased 0.6% on the month, 5.4% on the year, both higher than in December and both ahead of expectations, excluding food and energy prices. Uh, they were up 0.6% for the month and 4.7% from a year ago, again higher than the previous month and ahead of the forecasts. Personal income jumping more than expected, but not keeping up with consumer spending. Cleveland Fed President Loretta Mester telling CNBC the central bank still has more work to do to rein in prices. We're going to set policy to do what we have to do to get back to price stability. So we've been raising interest rates. We've seen some of that working through the economy. We have seen some pressure off the inflation, but inflation remains too high. And as as you know, coming out of the, the meeting last time and the minutes showed earlier this week that we're going to have to do a little more to get that back to price stability of 2%. Loretta Mester, well, according to CME data, market pricing for a 50 basis point hike in March rose to about 33% in the wake of Friday's number. But Mester said it was too soon to say whether a 50 basis point jump was warranted. I don't prejudge, right? I go into the meetings and I'm going to look at the data and we're going to have a new set of forecasts and that's going to help guide where we need to get to. But that's a tactical decision that we make at the meeting, right? It's got to be based on where we're going, how much the economy is slowing in terms of getting demand back in line with supply. Roger Lee joins us, head of UK equity strategy at Investec. Roger, I know you roam a little wider than the UK, so so let's just talk about this PCE number. Um, Is the idea of a pivot this year, i.e. a cut in rates from the Federal Reserve, now as dead as the dodo? Good morning. Um, I think it's fanciful, completely fanciful. The uh, the data on Friday, um, and actually coming off the back of pretty strong data for all of Feb- all, all of uh, February to date. I mean, really, it was two elements of it that I think take that interest rate cut completely off the table. First of all, services inflation, as you mentioned, it was the highest level since 1984. I mean, the service inflation we know is a problem in that it's linked to wage growth and the strong labour market. But it was the goods inflation. Now, everyone's been expecting goods price inflation to fall, or the shipping rates have fallen, and uh, the uh, reopening of China was expecting to drive uh, goods price inflation down. That was up on the month. Now, that's the first time it's been up for three months. So inflation's a problem. It's certainly not going down anytime soon, it would appear, and therefore interest rates aren't going down anytime well, soon. Well, this is, this is the conundrum, isn't it? Because Steve was telling us about his heating oil, and clearly we, we've had a reset on prices sort of back almost to pre-COVID levels. Um, freight rates are collapsing. They've gone back to pre-COVID levels. Gas prices back to you know pre-COVID levels. We look at um, the the wages, and even as wages are running a little hot, they're still not keeping up with inflation effectively. So we know that the consumer spending power is gradually being eroded here. Supply chains are reconnected. How quickly do you think um, we could anticipate inflation coming down? 
given that all of these things are adjusting very rapidly at this stage, what is keeping prices higher? Well, it's essentially coming back to the labour market. That, that, that's what's driving inflation and service. This, certainly the services end of inflation. And, you know, as we talk about every time you know, we discuss this, you know, in, uh, the labour market in the US is what's different this time with the labour market here to a certain extent. And whilst that very strong labour market uh, remains, then you get wage inflation and therefore you get service inflation. I mean, the two are inextricably linked. And so... You, to see a significant fall in the services side of inflation, you would have to see a significant dislocation in the labour market, and that doesn't seem to be happening. Now, whether that's the Fed's intention, whether they want to see this uh, rise in employment, well, they would ideally like to do it, but are they prepared to break the economy to get that service inflation down? And I think that's the question that and the markets are facing. you two, so far, had had a great debate about economics, but what about the market as well? Because the, as far as I can see, the valuations in the United States, and again, big disparity from what you're been, you've been talking about with us previously on the UK, don't give you any wiggle room. They don't give you any historic benefit of the doubt in terms of what you pay for the US stocks at 20 odd times earnings forward for the S&P. Whereas at least in Europe, if you do buy the market, and obviously you're gonna fall as well as the US markets if the US markets decline, but at least you've got a bit of earning support. And I don't see, I don't see in the States. Am I wrong? No, I think, you think you're absolutely right. I think that the, the concentration risk in the US is actually the complete reverse to the concentration risk in the UK. So the, 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 the top five stocks in the US are the most expensive stocks, broadly speaking, in the S&P. And obviously the top five stocks in the UK or the, or the bottom quartile of stocks in the UK are the cheapest stocks in the UK. So we have this complete reversal, as you say, and it's that valuation pressure, that valuation pressure that could return in the US, that, that is, is the issue. So here's the problem that you have, and that if the US does decline dramatically from here, and they've already come off dramatically anyway, we're in bear market territory on some of the major indices and states, Europe will fall as well. Um, there's no doubt about it, we can't offset, now will we fall at a lesser rate? Yeah, but I can't eat relative valuation, it's still going to decline, isn't it? Or, or is it? We actually, have we got support from valuations in the UK and in Europe that's actually going to buffet us if we do get a storm coming across the Atlantic? Well, I always use the example of last year. I mean, we saw a significant decline in the Nasdaq last year, and yet the FTSE was broadly speaking up. And in fact, the top 20 stocks within the FTSE were significantly up. And I think that's the key. So you know, last year would suggest that uh, the FTSE can outperform uh, in a falling US equity environment. Well, get, uh, put, put, put some more flesh on the bones there. What is going to outperform? What should our audience own to weather a recession in the States? Well, it all comes down to valuation, again, as you, you, you frequently refer to. And the problem that the market's facing, certainly on the back of that PCE data on Friday, and, and uh, as Steve said, I mean, this idea that rates are going to be higher for longer has, has got to now really be an accepted view. The idea that uh, US Treasury yields, uh, certainly at the longer end of the curve, are still going to have this, uh, what we call this yield inversion, when they're, when they're on lower yields than the short end of the curve, that must start to reverse. And that starts to put pressure on the higher multiple parts of the market and that's principally the US and in the UK again you come back to wanting to own the lower multiple stocks so so we still think we still stick with what 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 did well last year is what's going to do well this year because the world hasn't changed that much right, that's the, the point. next uh, on our prompt it says Berkshire uh, or Berkshire depending on what the story is because the story I actually think I know is about Berkshire Hathaway 
But actually, the story on this side of the Atlantic is about Berkshire today, because that, we understand, is where we're going to see Ursula von der Leyen, potentially, with Rishi Sunak as well. How much do events in Berkshire rather than Berkshire matter for UK investors, i.e. the perception about where UK business stands. And the reason why I'm saying this, of course, is because we are thinking we're going to get a latest Brexit deal, which is going to make a smoother transition of goods and improve relations with the EU and the United States. Well, it feels as if we've been here a few times before, though, don't we? So whether yeah. it's in Berkshire or whether it's elsewhere in the country. But um, I, I think the, well, let's hope that, that they do get some deal and sort the protocol out and we can move forward, though. That may be optimistic. I think, it, I think it has some ramifications. If it, if it goes badly wrong and we get another sort of significant fallout with the EU, then clearly that will have an implication on sterling. It does every single time we see yeah. this. Um, it will therefore have an implication on sort of UK domestic stocks because it's the typical trade that uh, plays out if there's a row with Europe. Sterling goes down and some of the domestic stocks well, go down. I suppose down. the good news for our viewers is <laughs> yes. it's Berkshire, so there's only a little bit of intonation issues, Berkshire or Berkshire, rather yes. than Gloucestershire. Yeah, that would be more, more <laughs> difficult, wouldn't it? Uh, Roger, we have to say goodbye to you, but thanks so much for coming in early. Good to see you this morning. Uh, Roger Lee, head of UK equity strategy at Investec. But, it, uh, but I think it's a fascinating question. Is there an opportunity for a reset of the relationship across the board with the EU? Could this be some Brexit 2.0? Some people I know we're going to do this conversation later, yes. but some absolute, I was going to say a bad word, some diehards, there you go, okay. there's a softer that's word, a, some diehards on the right word. wing of the British political establishment, or, or certainly on the wing of isolationism, do not want a better relationship with Europe. Right. They've won. They've got Brexit. But they don't want tighter relations with a major trading partner. It is absolutely bonkers. They would prefer to go and find a small Pacific nation that we can have better trading nation relations with rather than the EU because they are so intrinsically against having close relations with the EU. It's nuts. Uh, as you say, we're going to do this conversation later. <laughs> um, Berkshire Hathaway's operating profit fell during the fourth quarter as inflationary pressures weighed on the conglomerate's business, down 7.9% on the year to $6.7 billion. For 2023, operating earnings jumped 12.2% to a record $30.8 billion. But the group fell to a net loss of more than $22 billion as stock prices declined. Berkshire's cash hoard uh, swollen then to more than $128 billion by year end, up from almost $109 billion in the third quarter. In his annual letter to shareholders, Warren Buffett urged investors to focus on the big picture over the long term rather than higher inflation and other factors which dampened stock prices last year. Writing, I have yet to see a time when it made sense to make a long-term bet against America, and I doubt very much that any reader of this letter will have a different experience in the future. For a wide range of commentary on this, including more on Berkshire's results, Buffett's letter in full, and who he branded economically illiterate, check out CNBC.com. Right, well, when I'm standing on a cold street in Eastern Europe as well, uh, they thought, oh, where should we send Karen? Let's send her somewhere warm and lovely at uh, this time of year that's beginning to kind of warm up a bit. So she's in Barcelona, I believe. <laughs> I am indeed. It's actually not that warm. I, I hate to burst the bubble. It's actually quite chilly here today. But I am here at Mobile World Congress in Barcelona. We're going to be talking about how the industry intends to bank returns from 5G from here. We've been speaking to the CEO of Nokia, Pekka Lundmark. We'll be right back with plenty of coverage for you.
Listen to CNBC's Beyond the Valley, the podcast that explores the biggest tech news from across the globe. Join me, Arjun Karpal. And me, Tom Chitty, every week as we bring you insights into the top stories, unpack the latest trends and find out where the industry is headed. Now available on Spotify, Apple Music and Google Podcasts. Welcome back, everybody. Twitter has laid off more than uh, 200 employees and other 200 employees, representing now around 10% of its remaining workforce following mass layoffs last year. That, according to a report from the New York Times, which says that those affected include data scientists, project managers and engineers who work in areas including machine learning and site reliability. Twitter didn't respond to a request for comment from Reuters. Telecoms equipment maker Nokia says it is targeting more business from enterprise customers and unveiled a new logo as part of its strategy update. The company says it no longer wants to be viewed as a consumer company and is expanding, uh, aiming to expand the share of sales that come from enterprise customers. Uh, Karen spoke to the CEO Pekka Lundmark at the Mobile World Congress in Barcelona and asked him how big he believes the company can become in the enterprise market. We had uh, two billion uh, top-line sales to enterprises last year out of uh, just sort of uh, 25 billion uh, in total, so that's 8%. We want that to go to double-digit as quickly as possible, and then that's actually only a, a, a floor. It's not the ceiling. So after 10% needs to come 15% and then 20%. That market is the growth market. The service providers, where, of course, you can grow through taking market share, but that market is not growing more than maybe 1%. Kager uh, for the next few years. The enterprise market is a significant growth market and especially the private wireless market uh, is growing 27% per year. Well, Karen, the big reveal is that Pekka, who looks great in a suit, doing his best to look great in a T-shirt. I think he looks better in a shirt and, and jacket personally, but he's really trying hard to push that new logo. It's very much a, a tech look, isn't it, for Mobile World Congress? I think he's quite proud of that shirt. But the whole point is around this brand refresh. And you might be asking why. It's been about 10 years since Nokia phones was sold to Microsoft. This is a disruption that still hangs as a cloud over the industry. Nobody wants to have the Nokia moment. And if you think about what they've done since then, they've build, been building network infrastructure, mobile networks and enterprise. What we've seen is that service providers' business has been slowing. Where the real growth is in enterprise, and Nokia wants to go after that, it is talking about effectively 8% of sales it has currently, 2 billion of top-line sales. It wants to double that number. That's where it sees the industry growth story. And don't forget we've been talking about use cases for 5G for a long time. This is exactly what they're talking about, selling private networks to those companies, to businesses that have extra needs. They're very much going after that business. So I sat down with Pekka, as you can see, and I asked him about where we are in that journey towards 5G. The market has not peaked yet. We believe that the 5G market will, de- will behave differently from 4G market where, where it peaked and then it started to go down. We believe that we are going to see an extended peak for many years actually between now and then, then uh, 28, 29 when then gradually 6G will start coming, uh, coming up. One key reason for this is the additional volume that we will be getting from uh, private and industrial 
5G uh, installations because it is so clear that many, many industrial actors, uh, manufacturing companies, mines, container ports, uh, power utilities, they will not only rely on network capacity that they buy from carriers, they will also be investing in their own private networks and this will be supporting the market in the coming few years. When do we see that? Because the use cases have been well cited that there's a greater opportunity with 5G versus 4G, but when will we truly see that business spending kick in that drives margins for your company but also for the carriers, the operators? I'm arguing that it is starting to be there right now. I mean, when you look at our volume development and our economic margin development the past couple of years, it is actually pretty uh, promising. And this is despite all the challenges we have faced, including inflation, lack of component availability, semiconductor availability on the market, then there was the war and, and now there's high prices of energy. Despite of all this, we have been able to actually accelerate our growth. We had 3% growth in 21 and 6% growth in 22 and 11% growth in the fourth quarter of 22. So this is actually accelerating at the moment. Are there any hard and fast numbers about the profitability under 5G versus 4G, not just for your company, but for the industry? It's very difficult to compare. 5G market is a larger market than or will be a larger market than 4G market ever was. And of course, scale gives uh, profitability, but then ultimately it's all, all up to the competitive situation, which is actually changing in the world, because even though we are not a political player, but uh, it is a fact that in today's world, the geopolitical development is actually supporting our business. Nokia CEO, they're arguing that they're starting to see benefits from 5G. The problem is that carriers, the operators themselves, have had a very difficult journey. COVID, of course, was one of the, the interesting moments when they had huge data requirements, huge usage. However, that was costly for them. They also lost out on roaming fees. And there is an argument now, and there's a European consultation taking place, that perhaps big tech should contribute their fair share when it comes to spending money on the, these investments. But I've also got Arjun joining me this morning. He's uh, been talking to a number of different players as well about profitability. Just to share with us some of the conversations you've had so far. Yeah, I think it links into what uh, Pekka was saying there about the conversation really has moved from 5G on smartphones to what 5G can underpin in terms of other uses. Enterprise is a big area, but so are uh, future mobility service, the likes of autonomous vehicles and also uh, flying taxis, uh, which are uh, a topic here. And perhaps we'll show you later, but there's a massive flying taxi actually just behind us on the SK Telecom stand. There's uh, one of the biggest telecoms uh, companies in South Korea. I had a chance to catch up with their chief development officer, Ha Min Yong, to ask a little bit about why this company is actually getting into the flying uh, taxi space and actually how that links to 5G. Let's just listen in to what he had to say. We have been providing the connectivity service uh, to, the, to the public for the last 30 years at least. Then, you know, riding on this connectivity service and infrastructure, we believe that, you know, telecommunication companies uh, should be able to deliver this urban air mobility as well so that we believe this is a kind of you know expansion of our business uh, business model from connectivity the mobile connectivity to mobility connectivity so that you know i don't think we have uh, limitation in terms of expanding our you know, uh, service area from mobile to mobility do you suspect that this business could be a significant portion of SK Telecom's business in the future or, or would it just make up a small part? We hope so, but not immediately. So for the next at least five, seven years, we need to make sure that uh, the service that we are going to offer to you know, uh, society and community is safe enough 
so that once it's accepted very well by the community and society then we believe that uh, it will generate you know you know significant amount of revenue and the size of the business thank you for listening to squawk box europe express for more market moving news you can head to cnbc.com or join us again on the show with jeff cutmore steve sedgwick and karen show weekdays on cnbc